Our text on this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel. And immediately in the first verse of the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel enters the Philistines. We're taken quite abruptly into it. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, it says. And we're not prepared for that. We're not prepared for that within the narrative of 1 Samuel, at least. If you've been with us for the last four or five Sundays since we started this book, there's been no mention of the Philistines thus far. We've been in Shiloh. We've been considering Elkanah and Hannah and Samuel and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. It's all been about the internal activity at the religious center of Israel. But of course, there's been a lot happening externally as well. And this has been happening. The Philistines aren't new in the storyline of the Bible. They're just new to us within 1 Samuel at this point. But the Philistine threat had presented Israel with what is its greatest challenge since entering the promised land. And we've talked before about how you come to Samuel only after having read Judges, if you're moving through the Bible in order. And there you would have found in the book of Judges that the Philistines are often mentioned, that three of the Judges are mentioned as having led Israel during times of Philistine oppression. So there's Shamgar in Judges 3 and Jephthah in Judges 10 and more recently Samson in Judges 13. Like Israel, the Philistines were relative newcomers to Palestine. Most scholars understand them to have migrated to the coastal regions of southwest Israel, modern-day Israel, in larger numbers during the first half of the 12th century BC. There they settled mainly in the coastal plain to the west of the hill country where the main Israelite occupation had taken place. They were a powerful foe. Technologically, Artistically, the Philistines were superior to the early Israelites. Later in 1 Samuel in chapter 13, we read about the Philistine monopoly on metalworking, that it was their metalworking ability that gave them the clear military advantage against Israel. There in the southwestern coastal plains, the Philistines, in fact, occupied five prominent cities, the cities of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, each of them ruled by a lord or king. All of which is simply to say, when you come to 1 Samuel and 1 Samuel chapter 4, there had already been a long struggle for the control of this region. And it would continue into the early monarchy in Israel. There's lots going on. As Hannah's praying in Shiloh, and as the boy Samuel is born, and as year by year, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, the Lord is preparing Samuel for what was to come. Because there'll be a turning point. 
We don't know how much time has passed here between the calling of Samuel in chapter 3 and this battle scene that we abruptly turn to here in chapter 4, but it might not have been very long. We're ready for things not to go well, aren't we? Do you remember the Lord's words to Samuel from last week when Roger covered this in chapter 3? Verses 11 to 13, just glance back there, chapter 3, 11 to 13. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. <clears throat> And so just in case you don't remember it or haven't been with us, if you look back one chapter earlier to chapter 2, go to verse 34 where you're in the words here of the man of God who came to Eli with a message of judgment, you remember? Against Eli and Eli's line, specifically his sons, and the man of God delivers this message of judgment and he says there's to be a clear sign that all that the Lord has said to Eli would take place. That sign's in verse 34 of chapter 2. Here it is. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. This is the chief priest of the people of Israel he's talking to. Yes, much has been going on around Israel, even as much in these early chapters of Samuel has been going on within Israel. And now these two things come together. Samuel's ready. It's time for the word of the Lord to be fulfilled. We don't know why the particular battle that starts chapter 4 was undertaken. <clears throat> As the Hebrew text stands now, we're left with no idea who the aggressors are in this conflict. Had the Philistines assembled for war against Israel first? There are some manuscript traditions that suggest that that's the case. But whatever the case may be, we're told in the rest of verse 1 that the Israelites encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now, Aphek is to the north of the Philistines' main territory that they occupied, suggesting that they were probably intent on expanding further. Ebenezer is just a short distance probably to the east of Aphek, about 20 miles west of Shiloh, where our story has been taking place so far. And then the disaster in verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Israel was defeated, not for the first time in their history. And in fact, again and again, in the course of the period of the judges, the very existence of the nation had been threatened multiple times. But Israel always knew that they were in the land by the extraordinary promises and work of the Lord, that the God who had rescued them from the most powerful nation of the day, Egypt, had brought them there. And by great acts of power, God had given the Israelites this land. Do you remember 
or if you've ever read it, you may remember the summary that comes at the end of Joshua chapter 21. You don't need to turn there, but it's at the end of where the land is divided for the tribes of Israel. Verse 43 of Joshua 21, the text says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. But here they are. soundly defeated by the Philistines. So that the key question is, why? And the elders seem to know that at least that is the key question. Look at verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Which is the right question. It just seems they didn't really want to answer it. Uh, to a point, the elders understood what had happened. They saw their defeat as an act of God, just as they knew that all of their victories in the past had been the act of the Lord. They're right. What they didn't know was why. Their question is understandable. But you could observe that just as important is what they did not say they did not say, what have we done? They did not cry out to the Lord as the people of Israel had done again and again in the period of the judges. They knew about the behavior of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli and Shiloh. They knew their own history, how in every case of former oppression or defeat, the answer to the why question lay in the conduct of Israel. But they don't go there. And so instead of genuinely inquiring of God for the reason of their defeat, which might have revealed that it was because of the wickedness of the people as epitomized by these two priests, they jumped to a different conclusion there's no acknowledgement of sin. There's no cry for mercy. Instead, they answer their own question. Verse 3b, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. It, it may save us from Shiloh? Do we need to be reminded of what was happening in Shiloh? Notice the text doesn't say that the elders asked their question. It says the elders spoke their question. Verse 3, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us? I think they weren't really asking. I think they were closer to accusing. So what do they do? Well, they receive no word from the Lord, but instead they just decide on their own to fetch the ark. The ark. Do you know what this is? 
this ark that is referred to here? In Exodus chapter 25, part of the earliest books of the Bible, the construction of the ark was commissioned at Mount Sinai along with the other furnishings for the tabernacle. The ark was in the tabernacle. You can read about it there in some detail. It's essentially a wooden rectangular box, less than four feet long. It's not very big, covered with gold. And on top of this gold-covered wooden box were two winged creatures, cherubim, facing each other with their outstretched wings touching at the tips across the top of the box. And it's, an Im it's a picture, right? There's this understanding symbolically that the ark is the visible sign of the presence of Yahweh. So you even see it if you look ahead in verse 4, how the narrator expands the description of the ark and called, says that the Lord is enthroned on the cherubim, right? This is a picture of the heavenly reality. For the Israelite people, this box symbolizes the very presence of Yahweh. That's exactly what it was for. It wasn't an image of Yahweh, but it was the symbol of his presence, which is why, if you know Exodus and Leviticus, the ark resided in the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary place of the tabernacle, which means that most people never got to see the ark. In fact, even when the ark would be moved, when the people were moving and they had to pick up the whole tabernacle in pieces and take it, the ark would be draped, covered, so that no one could see it. And then it would be set up again in the tabernacle and then ultimately later in the temple. And if you go and you read Exodus 25, where the instructions about building this ark are, you learn that initially there was something that went in the box the covenant tablets from Mount Sinai. And you may know that there were a couple of other items that would go into it over time in the history of the people, but the tablets were the first thing. And I think that's significant because you notice what the elders call the ark. They refer to it as the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The ark of the covenant. What's the point? The point is that it's a symbol not only of the presence of the Lord, but of the covenant of the Lord. The tablets are in it. It symbolizes the commitment of the Lord to his people. The elders bring the ark. Why? I think the long and short of it is they want to remind the Lord of his obligations to them. Remember Joshua 21, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. So I think there's something like this. Let us bring the ark of the covenant so that the Lord will do what he's promised and save us from our enemies. You see. But you know what happens. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. Notice how the narrator expands the title here. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. It's not just the Ark of the Covenant. This is the Lord of Hosts we're talking about. This is the king, the one enthroned. This is the king of glory, which is rather striking when you consider who's accompanying the Ark. Right? Verse 4, 
and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So you could see it coming now. The issue isn't God's failure to keep the promise of the covenant. The issue is the failure of the people as represented by these two worthless priests. They did not know the Lord, we read, right? In chapter 2, verse 12 from two weeks ago. Here they are with the ark leading the Israelites into battle. Just how do you think that'll go? And so we pick up on the clues here as readers, but the people don't see it. Just look at their reaction. Verse five, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It's their confident battle cry is what it is. The promise of the Lord is with them. Indeed it is, but it's not going to work out as they think it will. Verse 6, and when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Maybe Israel should have been afraid. They knew something about what this God was capable of. Though they're not altogether clear on the details. Verse 8, woe to us, they say, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Note the plural. They don't see Israel as having one God, but many gods. So there's a problem there. But they still see something of the history. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness, they say. So that when you come to verse 10, the Israelites are convinced they'll win. The Philistines seem to think it's likely they'll lose, though they muster all their strength in verse 9. And then verse 10, in sort of subdued fashion, says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And linguistically within the passage, it becomes clear that what God had done to the Egyptians, God had now done to the Israelites. And it's verse 11 that tells us what this all means. Verse 11, and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Which is to say, the Lord did as he said he would. This was the thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, as the Lord said to Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts was captured by pagan Philistines. There's only one possible conclusion. The defeat of Israel at the hand of the Philistines wasn't a result of Yahweh's absence, but rather of his judgment. 
of Israel's spiritual crisis. God hadn't failed to keep his promises. The covenant was broken, but not by the Lord. It was broken by the people. Yes, the priests, of course, but also the people. It was the elders who summoned the ark. It was the people who shouted their approval. All while they watched the likes of Hophni and Phinehas, who they knew well what was happening, go along with it. Leading them into battle with the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts. And so the rest of chapter 4, you just, you get the consequences of it all spelled out, don't you? There's Eli sitting on his seat by the road watching, verse 13 says, even though he's blind. The blind leader of Israel. There's several levels of meaning in that. You know, in Leviticus, you're not even permitted to have a blind priest. And there he is watching, the text says, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. He knew his sons were in trouble. This was the ark of the Lord of hosts we're talking about that his sons took out. It's not safe. Eli knows that. I think Eli likely senses this is the day he's been dreading since the man of God spoke to him in chapter 2. And so he's trembling for it. And the messenger comes and the city begins to mourn. And Eli asks, how did it go? In verse 17, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel's fled before the Philistines. And there's been a great defeat among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He'd been eating of all the sacrifices of the people of God. He had judged Israel 40 years, and now the Lord had judged him and his line. And it's over. Well, it doesn't end there, of course. Verse 19 then introduces us to the wife of Phinehas, who's about to give birth. Verse 19, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod. Kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. Ikavod. No glory. The glory has departed from Israel, she says. Because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And then verse 22 just repeats it in part to close the chapter, making the final emphasis of this terrible story perfectly clear. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The glory departed. That's the real tragedy of chapter 4, we're to understand. And it's the culmination point of all we've been seeing in the opening chapters and going back into Judges and understanding the place of Israel at this point in history. This is the culmination. The ark 
kept in the tabernacle had long been associated with the glory, the presence of God himself. The instructions to build the ark that went in the tabernacle, I said, were in Exodus 25. But it's then the culmination of Exodus in chapter 40 of Exodus, verses 34 and 35, where you read about the glory. When Moses had finished the work, the text says, then verse 34 of Exodus 40 it's the end of the book. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's what's set up in Shiloh. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's gone now. It's gone. The Lord's not with his people. And the story continues next week, of course. We're not over yet in chapters 5 and 6. And the, and, the, and the Philistines end up finding a lot more out about this God who defeated the Egyptians. And we'll cover all that next week. And the ark does eventually make it back to Israel, if you know the storyline here. All of this building up to 1 Samuel chapter 7, which we'll come to in two weeks' time. But if we can see it, there's a bigger picture warning in the events here then of, chap of, of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. There's a bigger picture warning. And to start to look at that as we, as we conclude this time this morning, I want us to consider another place in the scriptures that specifically references the events of 1 Samuel 4. And that's Psalm 78. If you want to turn there, go ahead over to Psalm 78. I mean, what are we supposed to do? What's the point? of 1 Samuel 4. What's the takeaway point? Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm, meaning it's just recounting events in history and interpreting them. And so by the time you come to verse 56 of Psalm 78, the people of God are in the promised land. So we're right in there now. Verse 55 of Psalm 78 basically is summarizing what I read earlier from Joshua 21, right? Listen, he drove out nations before them, it says. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. They're there. They're in the promised land. And then listen to verses 56 to 64. This would summarize the period of the judges right up to the events now that we read in 1 Samuel 4. Yet... They tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. Judges. When God heard, he was full of wrath, for he utterly rejected Israel. Hear it? He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. Forsook it. The tent where he dwelt among mankind, the same tabernacle that Moses couldn't go into because the glory was in it. And he delivered his power to captivity. That's the ark going to the Philistines. His glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men. 30,000 of them that day. 
And their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, Hophni and Phinehas. And their widows made no lamentation. It's all there. And I just want you to notice how verse 56 of that psalm began the explanation of everything we just read in 1 Samuel 4. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. Do you see? The glory departed from Israel for reasons far deeper than some failed military strategy. They tested and rebelled and did not keep His testimonies. Why? Oh, we'll find out why in 1 Samuel 7, because Samuel sees it. Why has the Lord been raising up Samuel for this day? So that when we come to the other side of chapter 6, the people of Israel hear Samuel say, It's your heart. <laughs> it's your hearts that are far from the Lord. And Israel will again hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Samuel and repent. And we'll come and we'll talk all about that in 1 Samuel 7. But 1 Samuel chapter 4 is a warning. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that despite Samuel's intervention and despite many other moments in the history of Israel, what happens here at Aphek in 1 Samuel 4 is just a foretaste of what would happen again in the future for Israel when the glory would depart again. You know your history. The people themselves would be exiled with it, driven from the land by the Assyrians, later by the Babylonians. And then there in Babylon, when the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 10 has the vision of the glory of the Lord, what's the glory of the Lord doing? It's departing from the temple in Jerusalem. Only this time it wouldn't come back. Or at least it wouldn't come back in the same way. Do you know where the glory of the Lord is to be found now, brothers and sisters? John tells us in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt. Literally, the word is tabernacled. Tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, verse 14. You see, in the past, God manifested his presence to his people in the tabernacle and in the temple, and they couldn't keep it because their hearts are evil. But now the Bible tells us God takes up residence among his people in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And you know, because we've talked about how the Lord in the new covenant is changing our hearts to dwell with us by his glory. But here's the question for us as we look at the challenge of 1 Samuel 4. How do you treat the glory of God? Or to put it starkly, if I may, do we treat Jesus like the elders of Israel treated the ark? 1 Samuel 4. 
You see, I mean, you read that Psalm 78 passage, and then you see what Samuel will have to say in 1 Samuel 7, and looking back on all this, and you realize this is the issue, that the people of Israel thought they could depend on the promises of God while paying no regard to His demands. They tested and rebelled against the Most High and did not keep His testimony, Psalm 78. The people of Israel give this great shout when the Ark of the Covenant came into their midst, but their trust in the Ark meant nothing. Why? Well, Samuel says in chapter 7, it's because their hearts are far from the Lord. Put away your idols, he says. And nothing's changed. In this sense, that if trusting Jesus is for you or for me really just a way for us to attempt to secure God's power to bring our success or our happiness or prosperity in our lives or whatever it is, then we're missing the point, dear friends. And our hearts are far from the Lord and the glory will not stay. 1 Samuel 4 is a warning, a warning for Israel but a warning for all of God's people in all times. A warning that we find echoed in the New Testament in a text like 1 John 2, verses 4 and 5. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.